throughout American history, others have been telling Black women's stories. It's our turn. Their narrative is distorted. Ours is a voice for Black women to look back and talk back about the oftentimes disturbing, always poignant, unnerving accounts and effects of the intentional intergenerational wounding of Black women and girls. Welcome to the Black Girl Back Talk podcast, conversations on racial and gender bias from girlhood to womanhood. I'm your host, Laverne Baker Hotep, with East Liberty Family Center and Kingsley Association in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'll be in conversation with extraordinary women from all walks of life who will look back and backtalk about tribulation and triumph and impart wisdom pearls that encourages us to claim our generational strengths, which continues to inspire, sustain, and propel us forward toward a future we're destined to create that promises parity, purpose, and healing right now. Let's look back and talk black. Greetings. Welcome to this episode of Black Girl Back Talk, conversations on racial bias from girlhood to womanhood. I'm Laverne Baker Hotep, and I'm with the East Liberty Family Center at Kingsley Association in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm also a board member of Women for a Healthy Environment here in Pittsburgh. And our organization is, of course, concerned about all environmental issues. And um, a great concern of mine is how environmental issues impact communities of color and uh, communities who are underserved. And so that's why I'm very, very excited to be able to speak to my guest today, someone who's really doing uh, some very special work and uh, has the the same kinds of interests. So my guest today is Dr. Ingrid Waldron. Dr. Ingrid Waldron is professor and hope chair in peace and health in the Global Peace and Social Justice Program in the Faculty of Humanities at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. From 2008 to 2021, she was a professor in the Faculty of Health at Dalhousie University. Dr. Waldron's research, teaching, and community advocacy work focuses on environmental racism, climate justice, mental health, COVID-19, and the structural and environmental determinants of health disparities in Black, Indigenous, immigrant, and refugee communities. Dr. Waldron is also the co-founder of the Canadian Coalition for Environmental Climate Justice, which has brought together organizations to share expertise and resources to address environmental racism, climate change, and other social injustices in Black, Indigenous, and other racialized communities across Canada. Dr. Waldron is the founder and director of the Environmental Noxiousness, Racial Inequities, and Community Health Project, also known as the Enrich Project. Her Netflix documentary, There's Something in the Water, is based on her book of the same name and was co-produced by Waldron, actor Elliot Page, Ian Daniel, and Julia Sanderson. First, I want to welcome you, 
Dr. Waldron to Black Girl Back Talk. Thank you so much for saying yes to being with me. Thanks for inviting me. So we'll we'll talk about the work that you're doing a little later, but first, can we talk a little bit about you and starting out maybe as your little girl self, who you were growing up? So what was Ingrid like as a little girl? I was apparently the bad child. <laughs> to my parents. And when I say bad, I was mouthy. I so you, was spicy. I talked back, and that's a no-no for my father, right? That's a big no-no, but I needed to get my opinion out. My sisters were smarter. Uh, they kept quiet, but I had to say what I wanted to say. And for my father, who was brought up in a certain generation, you just don't talk back. So I kind of got branded earlier as the bad one, which is not really good because bad has so many different connotations. My bad was just mouthy. As I got older, I guess I was still mouthy, but there was a certain point where I said to myself, I'm not going to be able to keep a job and I'm not going to be able to get along with people if I continue on this path. So I've learned over the years, and of course I'm mature now, so it's not even an effort that I have to make. I've learned over the years to kind of keep it shut and to try to say things in a much more tactful way. I do have friends who say to me that I, what is the word they use? I speak as it is. I forgot the word that they use, plain spoken, which I never knew. But, you know, you have friends who can tell you things about, um, so they're, they're not saying that I'm rude. They're just saying I'm plain spoken. I say what it is and there are no frills. So I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I say to them, ah, that's not a good thing. That could put people off. But they've said to me, no, 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 that's a good thing. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so give an example of something that your back talk got you in trouble for as a, as a girl. <laughs> it wasn't anything specific. It was, you know, my father needed to have the final say. And then I might say something else after him in order to explain myself, and then I'd be punished. I can't even remember what it is, but it's basically everything, because <laughs> you don't cross him. So he wanted to have the final word, but then there I go, <laughs> trying to get the final word, and I was punished. That's I got right. more punishment than my two sisters. So, <laughs> <laughs> so given that back talk, there you go. Oh my goodness, yeah. So when it comes to issues of race, as a girl, did you experience this realization about race when you were a child? And if so, when? Yes, very early on. I think sometimes African-Americans are surprised, maybe because they think there aren't a lot of Black people in Canada or they don't think uh, Canada has racism. But yes, uh, in grade school, right from the beginning, um, I was born in Montreal, then left for Ottawa. Uh, physical abuse, so overt forms of racism, being called the N-word, being pushed in the snow, having my temples uh, kind of bruised as three young white guys uh, brushed past me, but purposely uh, hit my temples. Uh, so physical abuse and overt forms of racism was a reality on the playground and being called the N-word. Um, I didn't understand systemic forms of racism. Obviously, I mean, I was too young to understand that, but my parents took my sisters and myself to Trinidad in the Caribbean, which is where my parents are from, for about five years. We left, at, I left at around 11 years old, and then I returned to Canada after five years. So I spent five years in the Caribbean. I spent five years in a 
Caribbean society that was black dominant. Our political leaders, our teachers, everybody was black, which is great, a great thing about being in the Caribbean. And I think through that experience, when I then returned to Canada, I was able to see systemic forms of racism in a way that I couldn't. Part of it, of course, is I was older, but I think when you live in a black dominant society and then you return to a white dominant society, you see things differently. And I felt like I was armed or equipped with a better, stronger understanding of the much more subtle ways in which racism played out. And that happened primarily because I started looking for jobs. I was older, I was a young person, a teenager, and I started to look for jobs in Montreal and later in Toronto and not getting jobs that I was clearly qualified for, not getting jobs when the white people who were hired only had, for example, a high school education and I already had an undergraduate degree from the top university in, in Canada, which is McGill University. Um, that happened repeatedly. And I, I tried to make sense of it. And when you're a black person at times, you make sense of it by saying, oh, is there something that I did? Is there something that I need to have more of? Am I not enough? What do I need to do? You tend to turn that inward and you blame yourself. And that's what racism does very successfully. It convinces people of color that they're to blame or they're trying to find the answers within themselves. Uh, over the years, I recognized that this was systemic forms of racism. I, I would say that my experience with racism or systemic racism has been in the form of employment discrimination. That has been the theme, I guess, of my life. So, yeah, I think living in a Black dominant society in the Caribbean changed my perspective and equipped me with a different understanding where I was able to better understand and see and identify systemic forms of racism, particularly in employment. You talked about most people, especially in the U.S., don't think about Black people in Canada. Yeah, they <laughs> told me that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. You know, I know I was, I know that there are Black people in Canada, but I did not know about you know, communities that are sectioned out as you see in the U.S., you know, and so can you talk a little bit about a little bit more about growing up as a black girl in Canada? Sure. I would say our communities are not as segregated as in the U.S., although that's changing in the U.S. You know, before the Bronx was predominantly black and we know that it's been gentrified and gentrification is happening in, in Canada. So it's kind of hard to say that this is a, well, you can say that in certain circumstances, this is a black area. I would say that depending on where you go, Toronto, Montreal, the big cities, it's very integrated, it's very multicultural. We know that Toronto, I think, is the most multicultural city in the world. So I grew up in Montreal in a very multicultural environment with friends that were white and perhaps mostly white, you know, when I was a little girl in Montreal, then we moved to Ottawa. I would say that most of my friends were white and I didn't necessarily see race. And I didn't, I, I felt very comfortable growing up where I, where I was, comfortable with white friends, didn't think anything of it. It was a great childhood. I mean, it, my father was a dentist. He had gotten his degree from McGill University. Um, as I said, he's from, he was from Trinidad. So I grew up with an upper middle class lifestyle and background, you know, so when I look back on my childhood, I often say to my parents, uh, I had a Brady Bunch existence, the Brady Bunch, the television show. 
I just didn't have a lot of problems or issues beyond perhaps every now and then the physical abuse due to racism. But in terms of wanting for anything, no, because I had an upper middle class background. It was different from some black communities, but the group of friends that my parents kind of associated with were people that they knew when they were children because Trinidadian, like our friend, like their friends were people that they had grown up with in high school, right? So they all were professionals. So the people that we associated with were doctors and lawyers and people who were my friends, who were my parents' friends when they were children. So it was a really great kind of cohesive community. It's primarily, I should say, a Caribbean community in Canada at that time. I was born in Montreal, but at that time, most Black people were from Jamaica, Trinidad, Barbados, the Bahamas. Now in Canada, it's different. There are more people who are Black Canadians born in Canada of Caribbean heritage. And now we see Africans from the continent coming. That started in the 1980s, some of it due to war. But we've got a lot of Nigerians, a lot of Ghanaians particularly. Uh, so it's a, it's a mix of cultures, predominantly Caribbean and African. So can you give a little bit of history about the Black people who did come from other places and lived in those rather segregated communities that would be would have been impacted by some of the issues that we're going to talk about in terms of environmental racism? What were their lives like? Uh, well, you know, not all Caribbean people obviously had the same experience. If I just talk about Caribbean people, then you've got the Haitians who started coming around 1980s. And I felt that the, the Haitian people in Montreal were particularly stigmatized, more so than people from the English-speaking Caribbean. During the early 1980s, as you remember, that's when AIDS became a big issue. And one way in which Haitian people were stigmatized is that white people were attributing AIDS to Haitian people. Stay away from Haitian people, they'll give you AIDS, right? So I think even though Haitian people are seen as, as a positive because they can speak French and white people who are Francophones like if, if you can speak French, so in that way they're favored, they were also extremely stigmatized, particularly in the 1980s when AIDS was a big issue. We can't forget the African Nova Scotians that you see in the film that are kind of very unique and obviously see themselves as very unique. These are the founding black people of Canada. Uh, they've been in Nova Scotia for 300 years or more. They're different from the immigrant Caribbean community. They have a very different experience. They tend to be lower income, struggling with more income insecurity, less education, less, less high school degrees, less admissions to universities, so they tend to have less university degrees. Just in terms of those structural issues, they've fared worse for many reasons, many of it having to do, of course, with racism of a different kind, I would say, long-standing forms of racism and government and policy actions in a way that Caribbean folks are not as impacted. Uh, so my 13 years being in Nova Scotia told me that this is a community, African Nova Scotian community, despite the fact that they are the biggest, longest standing Black community in Canada, are struggling with a lot of social, economic, and political issues that people from the Caribbean are not experiencing. Their communities are unique in terms of the fact that they tend to be in isolated or rural communities. If you go to Montreal or Toronto, the Caribbean people will be in the urban core. 
you know, they come looking for jobs. And as I said, it's it's not as segregated as in Nova Scotia. It's much more mixed in Montreal or Toronto or Ottawa. But in Nova Scotia, what struck me when I lived there was the fact that um, there are about 45 historical, that's what they call it, historical African Nova Scotian communities that tend to be in isolated rural communities where you're not going to find a hospital. You're not going to find, in some cases, paved roads. You're not going to find a grocery store really lacking in terms of essential resources. In many ways, I mean, they're very much, I wouldn't say they're influenced by African-Americans, but their descendants are the black loyalists who left the United States for Nova Scotia after the war of 1812. Their descendants are also people from Sierra Leone. Their descendants are also Jamaican Maroons. So they've got Sierra Leone, Jamaican Maroons, and African-American Black loyalists from the War of 1812 in their background. Despite that kind of rich history, I found that many of them will say, I don't know who I am, which I find is very strange because there's a Black cultural center in Nova Scotia and it's beautiful. And on the walls, all the posters and the information in that center or museum tells you about their background. But for I guess a reason that I don't understand, many of them don't feel like they know who they are. Uh, but when I look at their history, I'm like African-American black loyalists from the war of 18, like the, the, the culture, the history is rich. So there's a sense of destabilizing factors in this community where they want to get a sense of themselves and they don't, you know, so they do see themselves as a unique black group and they have endeavored to kind of institutionalize that, their belief that they are a unique Black community in Nova Scotia and the founding Black community. So many of their actions, particularly with respect to government, has been about institutionalizing that uniqueness and foregrounding it as very different from the other Black people in the country. That is very, very interesting. Thank you so much for that history lesson. That's just something we don't learn yeah. about and hear about in the U.S. Mm-hmm. When you talked about work discrimination, your own experiences, I want to go back to that and see if that leads up to the work that you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of experiences of employment discrimination, but one that I think was really significant for me where I ended up crying or I used the word weeping on my bed with my high heel shoes on and my suit on <laughs> Um, was back in around 1993 when I went up for a position against uh, many people, but the person who got it was a white girl with only a high school education. And once again, I had my undergraduate degree. And this was kind of a, everybody was waiting and watching. Who's going to get that job? Is it Ingrid or is it this girl? And this girl got it. And it was kind of the end of the straw for me. I I was so frustrated because I had had other attempts of trying to get a higher position in that organization. And that just was like the end of it for me. I went home, I had my suit on, my high heel shoes on. I didn't even take my high heel shoes off. And I threw myself on the bed and I was literally weeping, which is very different from crying. It was a deep weep frustration. And at that point, I felt systemic racism in a way that I never had. And it led me on a course to pursue my master's degree because when I had finished my undergrad, I said, oh, no more school. I was just tired. I was exhausted. 
I did an undergraduate psychology degree and it just didn't appeal to me. Maybe the way they taught it, it was about Freud and, you know, just wasn't what I do now, which is cultural psychology, this, the psychological impacts of racism in black communities. And if I had known about that branch of psychology, then I would have been interested. But what I was learning wasn't interesting. So I said, after my undergraduate degree, I said to my mother, I said, sorry, but no more school. <laughs> I know you want me to pursue more school, but it's not happening. So seven years after that job, I got that job. I said, back to school, Ingrid, get your master's degree. And I was on a course to kind of look at a master's degree that was focused on racism because of my experience. Uh, everything I do now had everything to do with my experience in that particular organization. And that one experience, not getting that job against that girl, that was kind of that was just the end of it for me. I was frustrated. I said, I'm not going to spend my time anymore in an organization like this where clearly I have, I'm, I'm more highly educated than everybody in on that floor and I'm not getting the jobs. So I said, I need to get my degree. I need to get a higher degree and I need to move from this position. I need to move from this lower level position. This is not where I saw myself. I saw myself as a dentist like my father or a doctor or a psychiatrist. And I felt like I was just wasting time in this organization, which is, was very much clerical work in a way, you know, administrative work. And I saw myself as better than that, to be honest with you. I said, Ingrid, get yourself up and start applying. And I started applying for uh, master's degrees in, in England, in London, England, because that's a place I always wanted to visit. And I thought, how can I visit London, England, and also do a graduate degree? So between 1994 and 1995, I was on a mission. And much of it had to do with saving money because it was at that time $20,000 Canadian that I had to save in order to pay for room and board and the fees. It was a lot of money at that time. So I would say that my experiences of racism and the frustration I felt at not getting that particular job led me on this path. It didn't lead me on the path of environmental racism because I'd never heard of it at that time. That came later. But I knew I wanted to address racism and I also wanted to know this emotional impact that that had on me. Is That's this happening to other? Is that happening to other black people? And that is the question I want to ask you about that emotional impact, and just really what that felt like in your body. You know, because we we carry this in our bodies. You know, and uh, it, it sits. It doesn't go anywhere. You know, and so I'm wondering, how did you experience that in your body? Heavy heaviness and anger and frustration and you will see you'll see you know in the next few years i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna do that and i'm gonna gonna get my phd and you'll see not like anybody cares (laughs) and i'm sure all those people don't even know what i'm what i'm doing right now but that was my my feeling that is, I'm going to get you. You're going to see. I'm going to get all my education. And this is not going to happen to me. And the only thing that would prevent me from getting a job is something other than the fact that I don't have the right or enough education. But I'm going to get all that I can with respect to education. It made me extremely determined. But in that moment, anger and frustration. And, you know, when I ended up deciding on my PhD, I switched. I was initially going to look at the high dropout rates of young Black people from high school in in, in Toronto. But then I started to find some articles from the United States, Black American mental health articles that looked at the impact of 
racism in United States experienced by African-Americans. I was like, is this a field? Is this a thing? Because this is what I'm feeling. And I didn't know that this was a thing. My psychology degree didn't talk about any of this. So I realized there's a whole canon literature on the impact of racism on mental health and even black feminist literature. When I was in England doing my master's degree, I became acquainted with black feminist literature from black British female scholars, and then later black American scholars. And I learned about black feminist theory and I melded that with the impact of racism on the body and what it does to the body. And I was like, this is what I've been looking for all along. This is an actual thing. Yes, it is a thing that has tremendous impact, uh, devastating impact. And uh, we are feeling that, experiencing that, seeing the uh, results of that generationally, intergenerationally, you know. And this is a thing that is very concerning for me is that just seeing the impacts of racism on our physical, mental, and emotional well-being, and that us not having healed from that, continuing to pass down those maladaptive behaviors, you know, to generations after us, and uh, so wanting to have us heal from that, knowing that our potential is not reached because of that kind of um, devastation. Yeah. So when you, it's, I love that it's because of something that occurred with you, your own story, and that this love of Black people and uh, what is happening to us, that you decided to really pursue that, look into that, and uh, see how you could make a difference in that, in that area. So with the issues of mental health, Talk about something that you realized about the impacts and how we're showing up because of those, because of that devastation. Well, I think initially, before I really got into this area, I didn't realize that there's something cellular to it and that there's retention of it in our bodies and that that retention can actually create illness. I didn't see it that way. Um, and I find that fascinating. So when we, there are studies that indicate, of course, that African-Americans, Black people actually worldwide have higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of cardiovascular disease. And what's also interesting is that when we sleep, our sleep is very superficial. I don't know if you heard that. We don't go into yes. rest. Like I find this all fascinating that what racism can do this. Oh my goodness not bring you into REM sleep. So you're our sleep because we are always on the lookout in a way, right? That's what Hyper, they say. Hypervigilant, hypervigilant, yes. right? Hypervigilant even in sleep. Yes. Uh, our high rates of diabetes, while some people would like to say perhaps that it's just bad genes, we now know and studies have been emerging over the past 20 years indicating it's not about bad genes, it's about stress, psychosocial stressors, stress relating to racism. And racism, I don't know about the United States, but certainly in Canada, racism as a, as a determinant of health has only recently been acknowledged over the last uh, four years by the Canadian Health Association. But in the United States, I know, because of course I did my PhD back then and all my literature was from the United States. I know that 
in the United States. They've recognized that as a determinant of health a long time ago. But I just find much of this interesting because I think many people believe diabetes is biological, it's genetic, it's passed down, cancer, if my mother has it, then I'm probably going to get it. And all of this is true to a certain extent. There are genetic and biological factors involved. But the largest piece of the pie are the social determinants of health and racism specifically for African Americans and Black people in Canada. And the core issue there is stress, which we know raises your cortisol level. And once your cortisol level is raised, you are now predisposed to many of the chronic diseases that we thought were biological, but they are a result of racism as stress. Exactly. So I find that fascinating. It is really fascinating and so disturbing. And, you know, you talk about genetics, that these kinds of, well, racism and our, the impact of it can actually change the genetics in the body, you know? So, yes, we can inherit these kinds of diseases, but that the fact that the genetics has changed as a result of racism is really something to look at, you know? And that's epigenetics. Yes, well. yes, yes. So this is, it, it's something that is of great interest and concern um, for me just because of my wanting our people to heal and to have a deeper understanding of the root causes of the dis-ease that we experience on every level, you know, mm -hmm. and to go back to what you said about not blaming ourselves, you know, because that happens so much that we blame ourselves for the diseases, for the behaviors, all of those kinds of things, and feeling that we are less than because we end up on all of those lists that say we have the most of this and the worst of that. And, the, and when it comes to mental health, we're, we're really lagging behind in getting help with that. You know, nobody ever told us to come to any center for trauma healing after what we experienced as a people, you know. And so now we're starting to open up more about the, the mental health and looking at ways of healing there in the U.S. I wonder if that is happening in Canada as well. It's exciting for me because when I did my PhD on the mental health impacts of discrimination experienced by Black Canadian women, and I graduated with my PhD in 2002, there was barely anybody doing that. And now there's so many Black people. Now, I shouldn't say so many, but you know, you've got now more Black people who are university professors than certainly back in 2002. And so many of them are doing this work. You know, at a, you know, back in 2002, I had to look at American literature and British literature. Uh, I didn't find basically anything from Canada. Now there are scholars doing this work. So it's very exciting. I also feel like mental illness is being uh, taken up much more too in Canada. I'm currently, you know, working on a grant with some black psychiatrists and other psychiatrists to look at black youth mental health and access to healthcare services. I finished my own study on that, on black youth mental health services in Nova Scotia uh, last year. I did a study on black women's mental health issues in 2020, which is leading to the first ever health service for black women in Nova Scotia and probably Canada. And it's gonna include mental health. 
I'm involved in other projects on mental health in Black communities and Indigenous communities. I really think it's an increasing interest among professionals and the public. And as you know, it's similar. I mean, we're so similar in terms of Black Canadians and Black Americans. I mean, great stigma, great taboo in the Black communities here. But I feel like people are slightly opening up a bit more, uh, coming out to workshops, coming out to, to focus groups, um, attending events where they are able to talk about mental illness. And I feel like slowly the taboo, the stigma is probably dissipating. So I think exciting things are happening in the area of Black mental health in Canada. And I see studies and writing and activities directed to breaking the stigma and the taboo in Black communities. Well, that's really good to hear. I think we, we probably we may be a little bit further along in that we have many therapists now, Black therapists now, and uh, many Black people are seeking the services of Black therapists. So that's something that we can really be happy about because for a long time that did not exist. And, and Black people who did seek therapy were having to go to white therapists and, and, and always saying, these people don't understand what I'm experiencing, you know, and even some have talked about, they go to a white therapist and end up, you know, feeling like they're the therapist, you know, and uh, (laughs) I mean, really, so it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. So let's talk a little bit about what you're, the environmental racism that you're looking at, and just to have people understand the environmental racism is the disproportionate sitting of uh, polluting industries and other environmentally hazard projects that happen, you know, in indigenous, black, uh, and other marginalized communities. That's what it is, and it's happening all all over. So, talk about that and how you move toward working in that area. Sure, and as you know, that that term environmental racism was coined in the United States in the early 1980s by Reverend Benjamin Chavez. I believe is how you say his name. Uh, So I think in Canada, some people thought I discovered the term and maybe I'm trying to be an agitator (laughs) or something. And I would say to them, no, actually I didn't create it to be an agitator. It came from the United States back in the 1980s. This wasn't, as as I just described, was not my PhD thesis. My PhD thesis was on black women's mental illness. So it's a very strange turn for me Um, And also it's the project and it's the issue that I'm most known for, which I find quite fascinating because all my work was on mental illness among Black women. So I don't know how I got here, to be honest with you. I think it was meant to be in terms of the way things evolved. In 2012, I received an email from an environmental activist and he was told to contact me by a health agency because I had partnered with that health agency on a gentrification project a few years back. So they said, oh, you want, you're looking for a professor to do work on environmental racism. Have you reached out to Ingrid Waldron? He said, no, I've never heard of her. So they said, well, I suggest you reach out to her. Because, you know, in Halifax, there are a few Black university professors. So, of course, they gave my name. There was probably only about four of us at that time. And they said, I would suggest you reach out to Ingrid. We met. And I looked at him like he was crazy. And I said, environmental racism? I've never heard of that. What is that? And he was shocked that I had never heard of it, and he explained it to me. And I recognized quickly that although I knew nothing about the environment and really had no interest in the environment, it was a health issue because 
people are worried about having a landfill or a dump near their community because they're worried about getting cancer, just to be blatant. That's what they're most concerned about. So I said, well, this is a health issue. And from what he's telling me, it's impacting black communities and it's impacting indigenous communities. And those are two communities that I work with and that I'm very interested in. Obviously this is a health project. So why would I say no? The only thing that I was concerned about was that I did not have an environmental science degree. And initially I thought, well, I can't do this project. I mean, you need to know about contaminants and pollutants. You need to have that scientific background. And I still think that you do, but I recognize that I come at this from a very important perspective, which is a sociological perspective, because I'm a sociologist. And while I guess I will leave it to the environmental scientists to talk about the contaminants and pollutants, I can talk about this in another way. I can talk about colonialism. I can talk about intersectionality. I can talk about racism. I can talk about health. And many of the environmental scientists that I know are not talking about these issues. So I said to myself, I think I can do this. I can't do it the traditional way, but I can do it my way. And I, you know, I was hesitant to take it on. It took me a while. And then I said to him, okay, I'll do it. And I started the, with the project in the spring of 2012 by looking for a grant and recognizing that it had to be community-based. It had to be community engaged. I needed to meet with the communities. I needed to drive down to the communities and meet them and develop relationships over time with them so that they can trust me. I mean, historically, Black communities, Indigenous communities, not trustworthy for a good reason. You've got researchers coming in, taking from them, never going back, using them and not doing anything with it. So they don't trust easily. And I would say the indigenous community even more so because I'm not indigenous. I could say, well, I'm black, so the black people might let me in. But the indigenous community, who am I? I'm a black person, not part of their community. Who am I to come into the community? I understand that. So Mm -hmm. it was a very, it's been challenging. But over the years, I've developed real relationships that's not based on research. I just have relationships with community members now. Yes, and everything and it's is not about. For, it's not for a goal of getting tenure. Yes, yeah. and everything is about relationships, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, what brought you to to writing this this book? What was the story that brought you there to these people in Nova Scotia? Well, the publisher asked me to write it, but I didn't. I wasn't ready to write a book at that point. I, you know. I thought maybe in a couple of years, I felt I needed to churn out a few journal articles, not write a whole book, but write some articles first because I was new to it and I wanted to get my feet wet. So when he reached out to me in 2015, this was about Easter, April, he said, I want you to write a book and here's what I want you to write about. You need to include both the black community and the indigenous community. You need to provide a historical perspective and I need you to talk about health. So I said, okay, uh, I'll do it. Uh, so I was asked, I mean, the interesting thing about this project, the Enrich project, is that what I find fascinating about it and why I think it was destiny is because I never pursued any of it. The environmental activists came to me. The publisher, a lot of people want a book published. They are going after a publisher, right? They're trying to find a book agent. I, the publisher, came to me. The film came to me through I didn't pursue a film. Why would I think I could have a next Netflix film like me? <laughs> Why? Right? So I find it fascinating when I look back on this project, like I, I have to believe that it was destiny because I was happy doing my mental health stuff, my black women and mental health. That's still my passion, actually, more so than environmental racism. That's my passion. Everything you and I talked about earlier on about 
racism and the body. That's my real passion. And of course, environmental racism is part of that, but I did not pursue any of this. So with the book, he asked me to write it and I said, okay, I'll do it. That was 2015, April. And then I would say I got going probably after signing the contract late 2015. I got going in January of 2016 and I finished the book probably around January of 2018 and was published in April of 2018. So what the book is, is a bit of a, it looks at my trajectory. It looks at the journey I took through the Enrich Project to do this project, to do this, um, the journey I took to do the Enrich Project over the past few years and the mistakes that I made, my community-based approach. I give voice to the communities, meaning they're throughout the book. Uh, telling their stories. I talk about resistance and mobilization and grassroots activism on the part of these communities over the years, the successes they've had, the uh, barriers they've experienced. And then one chapter talks about health, environmental health and equity. So it's very much based on the Enrich Project. And my purpose there was to kind of trace my journey doing the Enrich Project over the years. Well, in the film really looks at those the struggles, the trials, and the triumphs of the people who were activists and who took a stand for their lives when, as it relates to the contamination that existed, came about as a result of this, this, this dump in the, the town of Shelburne, uh, Nova Scotia. It was in the 40s that this town became the home of a new garbage dump. And... Um, so it was where these garbage was burned at the at the dump over decades, leaving uh, the residents concerned about their health issues, and uh, and they really took a stand and said, you know, no, we this ha- this needs to go because it was affecting their water for goodness sake, you know. So uh, it, it, this film is um, showing showing on Netflix now. There's something in the water. And I highly recommend that uh, people check that out and uh, really see the, the, the struggles of these people, these people in, in Nova Scotia and uh, the stand that they took for for their lives, you know. And um, I just really thank you for doing that, that work. That was really important. And you talked about believing it was destiny. So so you believe in destiny and that some things are just are there for you. That's, you know, it's like, this is my purpose and I don't have to struggle for it. It comes to, to me. Is that, has that happened to you in, in other ways? I don't feel, I've never felt that way. And I, to be honest with you, I was, I was never spiritual. And at some points in my life, I was an actual atheist, believe it or not. And then certain things happened in my life over the years including when I went to England to do my master's degree, that I became a believer because I said to myself, this isn't coincidence. And now I'm extremely spiritual. I don't know what else to say about this particular project. I don't know why I would end up with a Netflix film, why everything about this project came to me when I wasn't pursuing it. So I don't know how else to explain it. And I don't know why it would be the topic of environmental racism when I had absolutely no connection to environmental issues in the past. In fact, I was not interested in it. In fact, I thought people who were involved in environmental activism were, some of them were heretics. You know, they were, I don't know, just kind of overzealous. And I think a lot of people feel that way. You know, you know, if you have a styrofoam cup, then they're angry with you. Like, <laughs> I get it now. But at that point, I'm like, 
these are overzealous people I want nothing to do with. I mean, I had a very negative view of environmental activism. So why mm -hmm. would I be doing a project on, on environmental racism? It just, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. So the only way that I can understand it is that this was destiny. And the film, the way the film came about is that actor Elliot Page reached out to me on Twitter. Like I've never been, I've never been reached out to by an, by an actor or celebrity of any kind. And then I wake up one morning and he's promoting my book and talking about the women on the front lines and talking about the Enrich Project. And I'm like, is this really the actor that I, you know, I, I saw his film Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio and Juno. Is this the same actor? It couldn't be. Why would he be reaching out to me? And then I realized a few weeks later, I guess it is. So I DM'd him and I said, thank you. And then we had a phone conversation at the end of 2018 and a second phone conversation in 2019. And then April of 2019, he comes down to Nova Scotia. I mean, he's from here. He was born here. Comes down to Nova Scotia and films us over the course of six days. Then we get into the Toronto International Film Festival, which is so difficult to get into. And actually, we the deadline had passed. So we should not have been able to actually submit it. I probably shouldn't be saying that. But he happens to be friends with the director of the film festival, uh, Cameron Bailey, who's a black man. And maybe Cameron saw, okay, this is affecting black communities. Let's make sure this gets into the film festival. But we submitted that after the deadline. It got in. The next thing we know is going to Netflix. I mean, none of this makes any sense to me. So, and, and you know, a lot of professors would love to have a Netflix film, to have, to have a spotlight on their research that they worked so hard on and to have that presented of course, through a book, but through a Netflix documentary that's getting to the world. Like, there's some professors who are very shy, but and wouldn't want to be on camera. But who wouldn't want that? Because this is great knowledge mobilizing. This is what we talk about all the time in academia. How do we mobilize the findings so it actually does something? So, I mean, none of it makes sense. But I have to kind of say to myself, well, I guess it's destiny. I don't know how else to explain it. It's been a gift, though, to me, because... There have been certain achievements or successes that have happened since the film came out. And I can't say it's only because of the film, but I find that it's very strange that there has been activism around these issues and nothing ever happened. And then the film comes out and some of these issues has, they've been kind of resolved after the film came out. Right. So the, some people might say it's just a film, but when I look at it, I think of the things that have happened since the film came out that have been resolved in Shelburne, in Pichulaning First Nation, in Sabaganagany First Nation, all the women that you saw featured in the film. How do I explain that? That's really, really amazing. And it, yeah. is, it, is, it is true that there yeah. are, and I certainly have experienced that many times in my life. Oh, yeah. where, um, you know, how did this happen? How did I get here? You know, that was not, that was not a plan. I did a project called, that I founded called the EVE Project, Enlightened Voices for the Environment. That huh. came about, I was in no way thinking about the environment. I was thinking about uh, the trauma that I was looking at um, violence and, and the, the ways that we're impacted by violence. I started looking at food and its impact on our behavior. And all of that led to me getting granted a half a million dollar grant funding to do this project, the E project for black women, educating black women around um, healthy eating and looking at the environment, how, it's, how we're impacted by that. It's how I got 
uh, involved with Women for a Healthy Environment. Uh, and it was not by interviewing somebody on the radio who was you know, interested in this topic and said, dream up a way to educate Black women, for us to meet Black women about this, uh, this issue. And that's what I came up with. You know, so you never know. When it's if it's if it's yours to do, you know, it's yours to do. And uh, so I'm really, really grateful that you took that on and uh, said, OK, yeah, <laughs> just what what can I do? I'm, I'm on the train and it's going, you know, just hold on, just hold on, <laughs> just do it. Stop questioning it. That's I mean, right. It keeps coming to you. Then it's telling you something. Exactly. So. Exactly. <laughs> Can you give me a quick story? I want to go back just to, just for a moment about the black women in health and, and mental health, especially. And what's something that you saw a lot of in terms of how racism impacts our mental health as black women? What's some of the troubling factors that you see there? Uh, you mean currently or when I did my Ph.D. or currently? Currently. Well, I think I think this is a mental health issue. I think when you speak to a lot of black women, they talk about imposter syndrome. And that is a deep mental health issue. I don't hear black men talk about it. Maybe black men are not going to show their weakness and their vulnerability as much as you know women do. But the women that I often speak to talk about just not feeling that they are where they, sh- they belong, whether it's academia or in other positions. Often when I talk to them, imposter syndrome comes out. And to me, that is that plays with your mind. That's about feeling that you're not enough, that you shouldn't be here, that you're imposter, that you're pretending, that somebody's going to find you out, call you out. And for me, that is about self-esteem, uh, a lack of self-esteem. So I think in terms of mental health issues and the messages that we get in the media that we're not good enough, for some Black women, the messages that they get from their partners, that they're not good enough. It surrounds us in a very specific and unique way. We're pitted against other women who are different from us, women of different races in very, very subtle ways, in ways that I don't think Black men, for example, are. In fact, I think Black men in many ways are celebrated, Black masculinity, and perhaps through hip hop and music, it's sometimes very negative because they're criminalized, of course. But I think Black masculinity isn't as derided as Black femininity. So I think the social construction of Black womanhood, for example, Mammy, Matriarch, Jezebel, Sapphire, you know, people used to talk about those kind of social constructions in the past in the literature. And I think they're still true in terms of how we are seen. And those result in Black women not feeling sufficient enough. That's the major mental health issue that black women face. I think we need to come together more. I think in spaces, I think that's happening in Canada a bit more. It's certainly happening in Nova Scotia where people are using barbershops, for example, or hairdressing salons to bring black people together in a very informal situation. So it doesn't feel like a focus group necessarily, but people are just talking. And we need to do more of that. That is happening in Nova Scotia. You know, we've got the Brotherhood Initiative which focuses on black men's health. And they've used the barbershop model, which I think be, began in Chicago, to just get black men talking because black men don't really want to talk about their mental health. So they don't call it, come and talk about your mental health, but mm-hmm. let's just talk. And that also was a brief, I don't know if they're going to sustain it, but it was also an initiative in Nova Scotia using a hairdressing salon 
uh, in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, to get Black women to come and sit and talk about anything that bothers them. I think we need more spaces to do that so that Black women don't feel alone. But of course, systemically, we need to address mental health system more broadly. Yes, that, that system has not always worked for us. And there's uh, a lot to be uh, desired when it comes to the mental health system and how it supports us or not, yes. you know. And so, also just from my study that I did, as I said, in 2020 on black women's mental health specifically, I was shocked by the amount of black women who have suffered sexual abuse. Maybe I'm naive. I want to finish by asking you to, what would you say to young Ingrid, the little girl now, if you could um, look back and, and talk to her now, that little girl who did a lot of back talk, <laughs> what well, would you addition, say to her? In addition now? to back talk, what was kind of typical of my childhood was that I would always go to my mother in the kitchen and say, oh, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't have any interest. Uh, my mother was concerned about me. She actually, not her, my, my father, surprisingly, wanted to take me to a psychiatrist when I was about, it's surprising because I didn't think my father was thinking about a psychiatrist, you know? My mother would be the person who would, who would do that, not my father, but I was always uninterested, unmotivated, lethargic, and my mother was frustrated with me. And I would say to her, I don't want to do the nine to five. I don't want to be like everybody else. What is life? I would always ask her this question. What is life about anyway? I was 14. <laughs> of course she was concerned. You were both. I was like, what is life about anyways? You wake up, you eat breakfast, you go to work, and then you go to bed. <laughs> That's what I used to say when I was 14. So when I look back on that, and I say to myself, Ingrid, you have finally found your purpose because when you were 14, 15, 16, you did not have a sense of purpose. You were unmotivated. You were uninterested. You constantly said to everybody, what is life about anyways? And what's shocking to me is that I have so found my purpose. And I'm so excited every day to get up because I don't know what it's going to bring. I don't know, I don't know what emails I'm going to get to do this and that. I find my life is fascinating. I love my job. And I would never say that in the past. I've had so many jobs when I was a teenager. I ended up hating all of them. I just, I look at myself back then as, as a 14-year-old who had no passion. And I say to myself, thank God, Ingrid. I look, and I want to say that to myself. Thank God you found that purpose because life is so exciting. And life is full of so many surprises. And life is full of purpose. And I know people struggle to find their destiny. Uh, I know, because it, it's difficult. You don't know why you're here. And I feel like I do know. And that is very surprising to me when I so, compare myself. Mm -hmm. So Ingrid, if you could say what name, what it is that is your purpose, what would you say that is? I think I my purpose is helping communities through the skills and knowledge that I have with respect to research and health. I think I have an ability to organize people and to, to have an impact when people, that's how people talk to me when they talk about, or when they talk about me, that my work has impact. 
and that there are a lot of people who do what I do, but they don't see it through and they move on to the next project. So I think my gift, my talent is knowing how to connect science and research and data to drive impact in ways that make a difference in black and other communities. Mm. And I don't, I was not taught to do it, but I aim to do it. I will feel ashamed of myself if I didn't do it. If I just took from people, never returned and did nothing with it, I will feel like I was lacking in integrity. So I think my purpose is to ensure that what I do as a researcher, as a teacher, drives change. Powerful. Well, thank you so much for the contribution that you are being in the world. I really, really appreciate that. You are making a difference. And I love that. And I love that little Ingrid gave some back talk and that uh, she said, what's this whole thing about anyway? That's a great that's question. Scary. Wouldn't you be concerned if your daughter said that to you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. I'm sure I shocked my mother with some of my questions. <laughs> About the she, world, about life. About, uh, yes, about the big things. That Why she are would, we here? Yeah. And she would say, where did you come from? I mean, what? You know? <laughs> That's great. Well, what a joy to meet you. And thank you so much for sharing, giving so much of yourself through our talk. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Black Girl Back Talk was sponsored by Women for a Healthy Environment a nonprofit environmental health organization that educates residents about public health risks and addresses environmental toxins in the built environment, creating healthy spaces where all people can thrive. Thanks for listening to this episode of Black Girl Back Talk, conversations on racial bias from girlhood to womanhood. And thanks to our sponsors, Poise and FISA Foundations in Pittsburgh. If you enjoyed what you heard, share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review the program on your favorite podcast player. If you have comments or want to tell me your story, you can email me at blackgirlbacktalk at gmail.com. Peace.